Hey, all you gritty nurses. We want to share an amazing opportunity for RPNs and PSWs in Ontario. Designed in partnership with the Government of Ontario, We RPN's Bridging Educational Grant and Nursing Program, also known as BEGIN, is a tuition reimbursement program for eligible students enrolled in bridging programs. So, what is BEGIN all about? The program is designed for PSWs and RPNs looking to bridge to RPN and RN roles and willing to commit to working in Ontario's long-term care, or home and community care sectors. After graduating, program participants agree to a commit to a year of employment in either sector for every year or portion of the year they receive BEGIN funding. That sounds amazing. I've never heard of anything like that before. What can you get out of it? PSW Bridging to RPN can get up to $6,000 per year to cover tuition and mandatory fees for a maximum of $15,000 over three years. And RPN to RN or PSW to RN students can get up to $10,000 per year for a maximum of $30,000 over three years. The best part is, these are grants so as long as you commit to postgraduate service agreement, you don't have to pay the money back. And there are other benefits. Participants may also qualify for additional financial assistance while enrolled to help with costs such as caring for dependents, tutoring, and travel. Begin participants are paired with a dedicated case manager to support them on their journey in the program. They can also access free resources and support such as online NCLEX or REXPN exam prep courses, career counseling, resume support, and a dedicated job board. Upon graduation, we RPN will connect begin graduates to employment opportunities in the long-term care and home and community care sectors of Ontario, where they can make a huge difference. This can open doors for so many PSWs and RPNs. I really want to learn more. What should I do next? If you're interested, go to begin.werpn.com or email info at begin.werpn.com to learn about how BEGIN can provide you funding to expand your career and find meaningful work in Ontario's long-term care and home and community care sectors. Welcome to the Greeners Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your hosts for today. So, what are we talking about today? First question Have you watched Family Feud? Don't actually answer. Second question Are you into SM? Don't answer that question either. Not that we don't want to know, but really what we're talking about today is actually intimate partner violence in relation to nursing and healthcare. And these stories have weird connections in relation to both the family food and SM. So maybe before we get started, we can kind of talk about the stories. And I don't know, Sarah, if you want to get started or I can get started. These stories were quite shocking to me. Both stories were very shocking. Do you want to get started with yours or do you want me to tell my story first? Well, I think before we start, we should just warn everyone that we do talk about graphic violence and this could be triggering for some people because like, honestly, like the story I'm about to share, I was kind of really disturbed by it. Well, I call it peeling back the onion slash opening up a can of worms. And it was like, the more I read into it, the sadder it seemed. And I just thought about that story plus the story you're going to share and how many commonalities there are, mainly the fact that they're nurses as well, which is why we're sharing it. But I guess I could get into my story. 
And I'm, I'm actually surprised by this story because it happened in 2019. So this is almost four years ago where we talk about this woman named Susan Chen, who was a nurse at SickKids that is close home to home for me because right, I yeah. used to work, I worked at SickKids for a year and I worked across the street from SickKids for eight years. So just to think that this happened to someone that I may have come across like in the past is really shocking. And So just to back up all the way back to 2013, a nurse named Susan Chen was so afraid of her husband that she sent emails to her sister that included audio clips of his threats. We go back to 2013, but then fast forward to six years later, when she was 40 years old, she was actually found dead on her bathroom floor, bloodstained in Scarborough, and it was from a gastrointestinal hemorrhage due to penetrating and perforating anal trauma. Okay. She was a mother of five. So she had five kids with this person and he'd been abusive for a long time. And many times she felt she was fearing for her life. She actually told people that she worked with that she was abused in places that her husband knew wouldn't be seen. So like not her arms or her face or anything. So he was very kind of strategic in what he did. And it was obviously going on for a long time. And I read that at one point she actually moved out of their home and moved into a different home Mm -hmm. back in either 2017 or 2018, but he found her, brought her back. They ended up back together. It turned out that she wasn't planning to have a fifth child, but he sexually assaulted her. And that's how that fifth pregnancy happened. So it's just a whole lot of things all together. And then when I started to peel back the onion in the article that we're going to post the link to, it actually says that her and her husband met when they were in nursing school. Wow. So not only was she a nurse, he was a nurse as well. That's crazy. I didn't even catch that part of the story. That's actually really interesting. So then you know me, right? I start looking him up and seeing if he's registered. And uh, apparently he was a nurse up until 2015, which kind of makes me wonder, like if this crime happened in 2019, like why did he stop practicing four years earlier? Like, was it related to something that happened? Like, was he arrested? I'm not really sure there, but this kind of leads to more questions. And I guess the main thing is we don't know what happened, but it turns out that he did go on trial and he was, he decided to plead not guilty to second degree murder, but it does go on to say that he was convicted, but it was manslaughter. It was on a manslaughter charge, even though, I mean, we don't know what happened, but it seems to me like it wasn't as severe as it could have been. I mean, I I remember reading the case and being actually quite disturbed by it because there were other instances where she had mentioned, or sorry, she had recorded instances of, you know, some of this targeted abuse towards her. The story gets kind of even more weird because he actually alludes to this other, this other person being a part of this criminal activity. I, I guess maybe he was using this as a defense, but again, this is where, you know, believing women and also taking these these cases seri- more seriously. Like I was actually really surprised that this individual got off with man- manslaughter when reading more about the details of the case, knowing that one, she had this video evidence of him saying that he wanted to kill her and abuse her and, and rape her. For whatever reason, the court systems don't really, they're not really, t- when we talk about tough on crime, they're not tough on intimate violence towards women type of crime. Mm-hmm. And that's really disturbing. And the whole notion of, you know, this other persona where he mentioned took over to actually commit these atrocities and commit these acts to her was was really concerning to me. And I think the other piece that I found really concerning was she died by, they said the types of injuries that she sustained, the anal injuries that she sustained were life-threatening. 
So, mm-hmm. so either way, they would have known that whatever this individual used or how whatever the act that they went into, they knew that this act would actually cause her a fatal injury or or death, which she ended up dying from. Mm-hmm. It's really it's really shocking because you think about all of the times where she could have you know, maybe someone could have stepped in and saved her. And this just kept going on and on and on. And obviously other people knew about it. She went so far as to send her sister this video recording or this audio recording. And she actually said to her sister, don't listen to it unless something happens to me. Just keep it, just keep it in your inbox. If something happens to me, you take this and you go to the police with it. And that's exactly what she did. But I don't think her sister ever thought that it would be because she died as a result of the abuse that she suffered. And it's just like, it just makes me think like, who knows, we could have been working with a nurse who was suffering from intimate partner violence, but just because she was, she or he wasn't killed by the partner, we haven't heard about it. But it's always good to think about, like, even when we talk to people, this is why I like to talk about trauma-informed care, right? We always assume that people have suffered trauma and to be really sensitive about how we talk about stories like this. Like, it's not a joke. We're not here to make light of situations like this. It's really to bring awareness and really to prevent things like this from happening again. Yeah, I mean, I think when we go back and we look at even like when we worked in maternal child and let's say there was a patient who might have had like a history of abuse, the plans that the hospital had in place to protect, you know, individuals. I can count on my hand every single time an individual ended up showing up. Like, I don't even understand how they were able to get into the hospital setting, no less that the fact that they had this information. It just, again, speaks to me that we don't have strong enough policies and against intimate partner violence. How many stories have we heard? How many stories have we read about violence that happens to women, violence that happens to nurses, and nothing is really done about it? So to me, it's hugely concerning. And again, these cases speak to a greater problem where nurses aren't believed, we're not, we're not taken seriously. And when we're talking about these instances of violence, organizations aren't doing nearly enough to help and protect support nurses. And neither are, you know, the policies of the government who makes these types of decisions. I think manslaughter was a slap on the wrist for what this individual had done. So, yeah. And I don't know if you remember, but when we were back in the day, when we were working on the floor, there were questions that we were supposed to ask to screen for intimate partner violence. But did we have the resources to actually deal with that? So if someone were to disclose to you, yes, I'm being beat by my husband while they're in labor or shortly after childbirth. I guess what I have done in the past is I referred that person to social work, but I wish I had more time to actually unpack all of that and help this person. I just feel like we weren't given the right tools. We never had enough time. I can only imagine it's being, it's worse now with the patient ratios that you hear about it. And it causes this moral distress because you don't feel like there's very much you can do about it. And social workers aren't working 24 seven, or at least not in my experience. So what do you do in that case? Yeah. And it speaks to this other issue that we've seen just recently where, you know, whole sexual assault units are being fully closed down in hospitals because they don't have the staff nor the expertise to keep them up and running. And that's a huge issue. Like I've been hearing it at multiple different hospitals in Canada and the U.S. where they literally just say, oh, I'm sorry, we can't we can't do a rape kit on you because we don't even have the nurses to staff that area or sorry, we've closed that. You need to go to another hospital to explain your situation. And that's really traumatizing. Imagine you know, something traumatic has happened to you, you come into a hospital to hope that you're going to get the care that you deserve. And they say, I'm sorry, you can't do anything. Or you're waiting and waiting, or they just say to you, sorry, we don't, can't provide that. You need to now go to another hospital. Like time Mm -hmm. is kind of of the essence of these things. And it's Mm 
Mm. It's completely humiliating that you have to do go through that story again. So I think another part of, you know, having these conversations is bringing about awareness to the fact that we need more nurses in these areas to, uh, to help support patients who are coming in that are sexually abused or, ha- you know, have that intimate partner violence that we have these resources on hand. So we're not turning people away. It's a huge issue. And I really hope that more nurses will look into, you know, forensic nursing or whatever the case may be to become a part of that solution as well. And yeah. Organizations yeah. need to step up. Like, how can you just be like, oh no, sorry, we can't do this and turn people away. Like, it's really bad. Like, just think about a woman that's already suffered sexual trauma and you go to the hospital and you're told not to shower. So you still have the abuser's bodily fluids on you, so to speak. And then you're saying that they go to a hospital and they're being told that there is no, there's no sexual assault nurse. So then you're going from hospital to hospital, still dirty because you're not supposed to shower and trying to get someone who will like scrape evidence off and DNA and whatnot, but that's not even available. So like, what are you really supposed to do? Yeah, it's, it's so dehumanizing. And I think this is where organizations need to do a better job at the forefront, right? You know, you can't rely on one sexual assault nurse or two or three you need to make sure that you're making these plans and actually plan for the resources that you need. So again, another incentive for organizations to be like, hey, we need this. We don't want to be closing down units and we should have the right people and the appropriate people to do this work. Okay. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to play the clip that I found on this case. You guys can listen to it and see what you think. Well, Alan, the Crown is trying to establish that Susan Chen, afraid of what might happen to her, confided in others about her abusive relationship, even uh, sharing with them audio recordings that she surreptitiously uh, took and then sent to them. Now, at the beginning, this death was ruled suspicious when her husband's story did not add up. When police were called to Unit 209 at 199 Bonus Avenue on April 3rd, 2019, they found Susan Chan, a nurse at the Hospital for Sick Kids, unconscious and not breathing. The 40-year-old was found lying on the bathroom floor with blood on her feet and lower extremities. The husband, Mansoor Jalali, told police his wife was not feeling well and had been drinking alcohol, and when he checked on her, she was dead. An autopsy determined Chen died from a gastrointestinal hemorrhage due to penetrating and perforating anal trauma. Five months later, the victim's 53-year-old husband was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. Jalali, who has been in custody ever since, has pleaded not guilty. Susan Chen's mother, who is now on the stand, testified that in the years before her daughter's death, she received emails from Susan Chen that had audio recordings attached, which captured abusive exchanges between a man and a woman. She identified the voices as those of her daughter and Jalali. After her daughter died, she forwarded those emails to her other daughter, who then sent them to police. The judge has yet to rule on whether or not the recordings are in fact admissible since the Crown has yet to prove their authenticity. You don't get it, do you? Why don't you call your mom, tell her my husband said I kill you or suck my dick. See what she said, she's going to tell you. You don't know where you are. Chen's mother testified a week before her daughter's death, she came to see me. A lot was on her mind. She was not happy, just not herself. Also telling the judge alone trial that a few years earlier, they were trying to get a divorce. And Chen's sister has already testified that her sister confided in her that she was abused and afraid because her husband was drinking too much. The judge has heard from the Crown that in 2007, Jalali was charged with domestic abuse. And the next witness to take the stand will be a police officer who responded to Susan Chen's home just one week before she was found dead. 
For that, her husband was taken to hospital on a mental health apprehension. Alan, back to you. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks. I mean, I don't even really know what to say. Yeah, that was absolutely horrifying. And I think that, you know, we have to just pay more attention to these cases. And when when women and, you know, folks are kind of talking about their abuse, we should be taking them seriously. And maybe this crime could have been prevented. Absolutely. And I think based on statistics, it takes a woman many times of trying to leave a partner before she actually does. And unfortunately, in Susan Chen's case, there wasn't enough time for her to do what she wanted to do. And especially when there are children involved, it makes it doubly difficult. And when you feel like you're in a system that doesn't really support women, it makes it so hard. Yeah, it's very, very unfortunate. But let's move into the next story, which I'll be talking about, which um, really surrounds an, an American story actually happened quite recently, kind of came out of the news. And this is where I was talking about, like, you know, have you watched Family Feud? Have you heard a little bit about this case? Because it actually surrounds some very strange issues in relation to her name is uh, Rebecca Becky Bernadette Biffinick. I hope I said that right. If I think I, it's belief, beliefnik. Beliefnik. Yeah. Beliefnik. Yeah. I always like telling stories first to kind of, you know, center around the person who we're talking about. So she, again, uh, Becky was a nurse. She graduated uh, and received a faculty outstanding senior award. She gave birth to her third child during spring break of her senior year. During the COVID pandemic, she worked as a travel nurse And, you know, she actually was on the honor. She was actually going to get an International Daisy Award, which is huge. This whole kind of almost starts back to this whole clip with Stephen Harvey on the Family Feud show um, where he says something quite insidious. And it kind of I'm glad it came back to bite him. I'm going to play that clip now. He competed on Family Feud as his whole town cheered him on, but his local hero status is over now that he's been arrested with cops calling him a murderer. They say he killed his estranged wife by shooting her multiple times in a crime being described as brutal. Did this contestant on Family Feud murder his wife? You ready? Yes, sir. Dressed in a bow tie and suit, Tim Bleachnick appeared polite and good-natured when he competed on the show. But now cops say he's behind the brutal killing of his estranged wife, Rebecca, a nurse and mom of three. Her bullet riddled body was found inside her home after she failed to pick up their three sons from school. When Bleefnik competed on Family Feud, listen to his haunting response to host Steve Harvey's question about wedding day mistakes. What's the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? Honey, I love you, but said I do. The audience gasped and Bleefnik attempted to clarify. Not my mistake. I love my wife. I'm going to get in trouble for that, aren't I? (laughs) Yesterday, when Bleefnik was arrested for murder, he had long hair, a far cry from his clean-cut appearance on Family Feud in 2020. The state attorney's office is calling it a home invasion and a case of domestic violence. This horrific crime was not a random act of violence. Rebecca had filed for a restraining order against her husband, and later he filed for one against her, according to published reports. Back when his family appeared on the game show, it was such exciting news, a watch party was held for all their friends. Bleefnik was also interviewed for local news in Quincy, Illinois, where he spoke about Steve Harvey's wardrobe. If he finds a snazzy dresser when people really want to dress to impress, to be on the show, like he he relates to that and he likes to comment on it. Now Tim Bleefnik is making another kind of headline, one that no one who watched the popular game show would ever imagine. Again, yes, it's alleged that this individual had committed this crime, but there's all those same kind of caveats. I shouldn't say caveats. There's all those same things that played out 
very similar to the other cases that we heard where, you know, there those those moments of intimate partner violence and she was estranged from him. She had put out a restraining order against him. And again, when we hear these types of things happening, like why would this happen to her? It, it didn't seem to be some random form of attack. And, you know, her prosecutor actually says it looks like it was definitely not a random attack. It's, it's just very concerning. And I think the other part that I found was very concerning was he actually attended Becky's wake to pay his respects to the defendant. And this was confirmed by the lawyer. And actually, in a lot of true crime cases, people who end up committing crimes do end up going back to whether it's the crime scene or being a part of those instances. I don't know if it's like a finality thing, but it's almost like reliving the experience. And I think the fact that he went is even telling again in terms of that criminal profile of this type of behavior. And it's just very concerning to me because it's just, I really hope that, you know, uh, they throw the book at him. So when I'm hearing this story, it makes me think of a person, a man who's really two-faced. So he's this fun, you know, really lively person on Family Feud. He attends his wife's wake, but meanwhile, behind the scenes, he is most likely, I'm going to say most likely, an abusive, psychopathic partner who um, murdered his wife. And I kind of think like when we look at these abusers, I'm sure I'm sure they're very charming to people when they're not, you know, behind closed doors. And that's part of the problem is that they play this part of being the loving husband or whoever. And then they're anything but when it comes to behind closed doors, when they feel frustrated with their partner and that sort of thing. So it's really concerning. And I actually think that it's something to look out for. It's like a red flag when you see someone who's two-faced versus just being upfront and open with how they feel. A hundred percent. And I think that, you know, again, like these two cases have ver- have so many similarities where, again, this individual tried to get away. And even that clip that you played, the other nurse tried to get away too. And they both ended up in this situation where they are now deceased. It's just hugely concerning. And I think I, I want to touch on a couple stats in terms of in- uh, intimate partner violence. So inter- intimate partner violence is a serious public health problem in Canada and the U.S., and it can have a profound impact lifelong on your lifelong health, opportunity, and well-being. And the CDC actually works to understand the problem of intimate partner violence and prevent it. So again, it is that form of aggression that occurs in romantic relationships. The intimate partner refers to both current and former spouses and partners. And it can ha- happen, the severity ranges. It can happen from just, you know, stalking to as much as death, right? And again, it can happen over a short period of time or it can happen over a very long period of time. In relation to, with if it's physical violence, it can be anything from them trying to hurt them physically, through hitting, kicking, spitting, or any type of other physical force. And then there's also that sexual violence as well. So sexual violence is forcing or attempting uh, to force a partner to take part in a sexual act in which they don't consent and don't want to be a part of. And we've seen that as well. And And I think the other part that people don't think about with intimate partner violence is also even sexting is considered um, intimate partner violence. So even if you are receiving unwanted sexual advances, that is still considered intimate partner violence. That is interesting because I think when people think of violence, they think of punching and kicking, but there's that emotional part you talked Mm -hmm. about. There's financial abuse. There's everything in between. That's all abuse. And thinking about the cycle of abuse, right? So there's some sort of precipitating event which makes the abuser feel really frustrated and angry. And because they can't control their emotions, then the abuse happens, then they feel better, then they apologize to the victim, and then it happens all over again. So then you might be in a situation where you think, oh, you know, he's apologized, he's not going to do it again, everything's fine. 
then it happens over and over and over. And it's the gaslighting, I think, that is the worst part where you're made to feel like it's your fault. Or, you know, there's many different things. Maybe you grew up in a violent household and you feel like this is normal and you deserve it. But the truth is you don't. Nobody does. And we need to help people understand that. It doesn't matter what profession you're in. It, it does. It can happen to anyone. Yeah, 100%. And the fact that, I don't know if you noticed this, but the fact that there's even a stalking show on Netflix, it goes to show you how insidious this is. Like, I think... I kind of find it very disturbing that we have a show that's just based on, you know, the stories of these stalkers and stalking is a part of that intimate partner uh, violence. It could be nonverbal communication. It could be verbal communication. It could be just, you know, seeing this person showing up in places that they're not supposed to be. It's actually connected to a, a variety of serious health conditions, economic consequences. And again, you know, it's hugely pervasive. So it actually affects millions of people in the United States and Canada. And again, they said about 40%, 41% of women and about 26% of men experience some uh, contact, sexual violence or physical violence and or stalking in relation to intimate partner violence. It causes that lifelong injury. People have post-traumatic disorder. They have concerns for their safety. They fear going out of their homes or they might be in constant contact with law enforcement. They might miss special events because they're afraid to kind of get out. And I think their, their day to day life operations are impacted. So again, that's why it's important for us as nurses to talk about this as a public health care crisis and concern as well. And it's just, you know, again, data from the U.S. suggests that one in five homicide victims are killed by an intimate partner. One in five. That's such a huge, huge number. Yeah, we think about all the time when someone's killed, it's like some boogeyman that comes out of the shadows. But you're right. Most of the time, it's someone that's known to the woman or man. And it's someone actually that knows them really well, like a partner. So that's that's actually putting you at high risk. And I also read somewhere that the number one thing that they've noticed with people who abuse other people in terms of intimate partner violence is controlling behavior. So that's the number one thing they've noticed. Like when you think about going out somewhere by yourself, your partner might constantly text you or call you the entire time wanting to know where you are wanting to know when you're going to be back wanting proof that you are where you say you're going to be or accusing you of you know having an affair when you're just out with your girlfriends like that controlling behavior is like the number one thing that predicts whether or not someone's going to be suffering from intimate partner violence or even being killed at the hands of their partner right so i think that if anyone's listening today and you know of anyone like this or maybe your partner is exhibiting controlling behaviors on you it might be an opportunity to really think about, am I being abused? And I, of course, the next question is, what do we do about it? Yeah, I think one of the first things is actually teaching and talking about safe and healthy relationships and what that looks like. Um, I try to role model that for my own kids. And then also just talking about it within, you know, the school, the public school systems, within having normal conversations around your home. What does a healthy relationship actually look like? It's also teaching that social and emotional learning for your your younger your younger family about how they should how they should feel because sometimes it's not easy to kind of say well you know this is the the huge picture but maybe explain if someone makes you feel this way or if you're you know even just that trusting your gut because I think younger folks they can understand what that means if you're getting those butterflies that might mm-hmm. be something that that's not something that feels good you should think about. The person that you're you're talking about, but having the importance of having these conversations can't be underestimated. We should have these conversations early and often with our 
their families and with our, our little kids. Yeah. And I think from a healthcare perspective, the number, like the first thing that we should be doing a better job at is screening patients. Mm -hmm. So the same way that you would ask them about their health history, you need to ask them, do you have any concerns right now about abuse? And, you know, give specific examples of what that looks like. But the other thing that really should happen is if someone discloses this information to you, you need to do something about it. That's like a legal obligation that if someone discloses abuse to you, then there needs to be follow-up. Whether that looks like referring to a social worker or getting more information, there needs to be some sort of follow-up and documentation. Just tagging onto that, also just making sure that the right resources in place. So let's, at the top of the episode, I mentioned that it's really important that, you know, if you have a, you know, a forensic nursing team or sexual assault nursing team, that those people are put in place and you're prioritizing that you have those workers available. Yes, it might not happen very uh, frequently, but it's important that when it does happen, that you actually have someone who's actually capable of doing that work. And if we don't have those people in place, it causes a lot of harm to those people who have been affected by sexual violence or, you know, even abuse. So I think mm -hmm. the first step is just making sure that we have the right resources in place. Another one is just, you know, talking to talking about adults and engaging with them in terms of what does healthy behavior look like. We've talked about, you know, Hockey Canada and various different behaviors that we see boys engaging in. And we need to really disrupt that narrative where we where we actually, you know, celebrate men being in these certain types of situations that are actually quite toxic and really talk about toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and really, you know, disrupt those narratives that we say, you know, maybe they're boys being boys. No, they're being fucking assholes. And we actually need to really deal with that type of negative behavior. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about that comment on Family Feud that the husband made. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like he made a really rude comment, but they laughed it off like it was a joke. Yeah. And Steve Kirby <laughs> was not laughing. He His face was like he just looked like. Oh, I can see okay. his face now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the husband mm -hmm. laughed it off like it was a joke. And I'm thinking like, could I see a woman saying those exact same words and getting the same response? I have I have a hard time believing that she would get the same response. And just going back to that toxic masculinity, men need to learn how to deal with their feelings. And, you know, a lot of times when there is an event where a woman is murdered, it's because she or, you know, she's tried to leave her husband. And maybe some men don't know how to deal with this rejection or they feel like it's a failure of some kind. Yeah, well, we have, you know, the Andrew Tates of the world and people who really look up to this individual talking about rape very openly, finding that acceptable. Like these are the barriers that we have to continue to break down. And it's very scary in a climate where a lot of men are acting this way and behaving this way and are actually looking up to individuals who say things about, you know, raping women and acting like it's an acceptable type of behavior. I think we we do need to continue to call these individuals out and we need to actually have stronger laws that support women and other, you know, other individuals from these types of targeted abuse. And I think that, you know, if you find that it, it shouldn't matter whether you're a celebrity or you have lots of money, if you're abusing and targeting women, we need to have stronger uh, measures in place. So again, that's looking at how do we strengthen these economic and political areas where we can actually have laws that protect women and protect folks from abuse in, in these in these particular ways. Absolutely. So I think at the end of the episode, we'll drop some links to where if you uh, feel like you need some support or more information, you can go there. And uh, definitely if you guys listening have any stories you want to share or any resources that we should amplify, please let us know and drop us a line. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we're always going to call for more resources and more supports. 
for folks who might be experiencing intimate partner violence. And then again, more supports for nurses who actually want to be working in these environments where they want to be working with patients who might have experiences to make sure that we have the right people and the right tools in place to support victims of this type of violence. So stay tuned and thank you for listening to the Green Nurse Podcast.